The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of your choice. Settle back, kick your feet up in your most comfy chair. Get ready for an incredible ride tonight, a true story tonight. It's a story about a kind of David and Goliath saga. David being our guest tonight, Jeff Morley, and Goliath being the giant CIA monstrosity of hidden secrets. Jeff Morley is the plaintiff in a lawsuit against that CIA. He is demanding the release of records pertaining to CIA officer George Doanides relating to the Kennedy assassination. Now, folks, the House Select Committee was set up in the late 1970s specifically to investigate the JFK assassination, the Dr. Martin Luther King assassination, and the attempted assassination of Governor George Wallace. The CIA gave the job of liaison between the CIA and the House Select Committee to a fellow by the name of George Joannides. Now, as it turns out, George Joannides controlled the information that was given to the House Select Committee, and he also kept stuff hidden from them. What follows in our story tonight is one of a complete CIA deception and purposeful misdirection. Jefferson Morley is a former writer for the Washington Post Online and now national editor-director for the Center for Independent Media. He is also editor of JFKFacts.org, a website devoted to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He is author and focus of the new book, CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Files. This is a book, folks, that reveals deceit and deception on the part of the CIA relating to the Kennedy assassination and why the CIA should reveal to the American people at last what it is still keeping secret. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You're Brent, very welcome. You set up, uh, you know, you set up the the lawsuit um, very uh, succinctly there. Thank you. Um, so if I could just embellish a little bit for people, this Please. is a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, which fi was filed, unbelievably enough, 13 years ago, in do in 2003, 
and is still the subject of litigation in federal court here in Washington. And the subject is secret CIA files about uh, JFK's assassination, um, which are unbelievably still withheld from public view. So I've been pursuing those records and related stories. And um, my new ebook, which you mentioned, CIA and JFK, The Last Assassination Secrets, tells the story of about 10 years of research around CIA operations and Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, and uh, the book offers no theories. It's all facts. Uh, none of it's ever been contradicted by the CIA since it all comes from declassified CIA records and interviews with retired uh, CIA officers uh, on the record interviews. There's no anonymous sources. Um, and it, it lays out this very disturbing story of what we don't know um, about the events of 1963, and in particular about CIA operations as they came to involve Lee Oswald as he made his way towards Dallas. So while it doesn't uh, offer a, you know, a tidy answer that fits on a bumper sticker, I think anybody who reads the book, um, and it's not a long book, um, uh, will come to you know appreciate just how much the record has been obfuscated, uh, misrepresented, um, or is in fact still hidden. Um, but from that, we do get, in the story we do gain quite a bit of clarity. One that the story that was initially offered to the American people that some guy came out of nowhere and shot the president for no apparent reason uh, was a lie. Uh, Lee Oswald did not come from nowhere. He was very well known in the upper levels, in the upper echelons of the CIA uh, by the fall of 1963. And by that, I mean the very top, uh, the director of covert operations in the Western Hemisphere, the, uh, the chief of counterintelligence, uh, the assistant director of operations for the entire clandestine service. These were the sort of people who were aware of Oswald's travels, his contacts, his state of mind uh, in the weeks leading up to the assassination. So people can draw their own conclusions. I'm not prosecuting any case, but I think if you lay out the case um, and the evidence as it has been revealed in the last you know, 10 years, and that's the, the scope, the time frame of my research, um, you see a very disturbing picture. For you, Jeff, what was the epiphany? Why write the book? What was the surprise? You know, I, I, I'll tell you, the, the epiphany was, for me, I was very interested in the figure of George Joannides because he was a man who, who was a career CIA, CIA officer, uh, undercover officer, um, well thought of, but not not one of the heavyweights, not one of the powers of the CIA, more like a, a mid-level, a, a kind of a representative figure, a, a typical CIA man, you might say. And I was interested in him because I learned that he had been stationed in Miami in 1962, 1963, 1964, and he had handled the uh, a Cuban exile group that was funded by the CIA, the Cuban Student Directorate, he was their case officer, which meant that he met with them regularly. He monitored them. He was, you know, developing a relationship with these young student opponents of Castro for, you know, to advance the purposes of the CIA. And I thought that was very interesting, especially because 
some of the group's members had contact with Lee Oswald in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. But the epiphany for me, Brent, was mm. when I learned that that was not his only involvement in the JFK story, that 15 years later, in 1978, 15 years after 1963, when Congress reopens the investigation, the CIA calls him out of retirement. He's not even an active duty guy. They call him out of retirement and bring him back to handle that job that you described as liaison between the CIA and the committee. And the liaison job means that he was responsible for responding to the requests of the congressional investigators for documents. How could we find out this document? Or could we interview so-and-so from the CIA? Joannidis was, was the gatekeeper. And this was the revelation was not only was he involved in the JFK story in 1963, he was called back in 1978. Well, why would you call him back? Why would you call him back in, at, at that time? And then it turned out you would call him back because he, was, he, he knew where the secrets were and he could hide them. And in fact, that's what happened. And we've talked to um, uh, Dan Hardway, who was on the House Select Committee staff, investigating staff. Robert Blakey was the general counsel, uh, Dan Hardway's boss, Eddie Lopez. And these guys said, you know, we had no idea. We had no idea that Joannides was involved in the events of 1963 when they were talking to him 15 years later. And that, that's the revelation. That was the wake-up call for me. And, and, and for a lot of people, it's like there's no... I've never heard a good explanation for that. And the CIA has never offered one. Why would they do that? And why would he conceal material evidence? So in my book, in CIA and JFK, which is available as a Kindle ebook on Amazon uh, for the affordable price of $2.99, I lay out this story. And it's just, it's an incredible story of the secret operations that JFK investigators never knew about. Incredible so, story, also, know, folks. That's that was the revelation. com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. It'll take you right to Amazon.com, where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Yeah, Jeff, yeah, more yeah. about George Joannidis. What was his background in 1963? What was he? He was working with DRE. We all know that DRE. Uh, right. What was he specifically doing um, in terms so of manipulating Oswald? So his job title was in the in the in the Miami station of the CIA. He was the chief of psychological warfare operations. So um, what it seems like his job was, uh, I think, and you know this is why we're still seeking records because it's hard to say things definitively without the records. But what seems to be happening was that he was running some kind of psychological warfare operation that involved Oswald and probably targeted the Fair Play for Cuba committee, the group which Oswald claimed membership in. And what's, what, what, what the, the CIA operation seems to have been was to highlight and publicize this connection between Oswald and the FPCC. Why do I say that? Well, we know, for one thing, the FPCC was the biggest pro-Castro organization in the United States at the time and was targeted by the FBI and the CIA who feared its influence and thought its influence would 
interfere with the U.S. policy of overthrowing Castro. So the FBI and the CIA were determined to destroy the FPCC. And I think that George Joannides was involved in that effort, and Oswald was used in that effort. So I think that's what was going on here. Now, I, 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 I hedge my bets because a lot is hidden. I mean, my, my lawsuit uncovered a lot of records, um, uncovered the fact that Joannides had a residence in New Orleans at the time, uh, in 1962-63. Um, but there was a lot that we, that we didn't find out other than that, you know, that there are literally scores, probably between 40 and 60 documents from the period 1962 to 1964 about George Joannides that are withheld in their entirety from public view. So there's a lot of the story that we don't know, but based on who Joannides was, mid-career, highly thought of, up-and-coming officer, psychological warfare specialist, mm. devoted to, you know, dirty tricks against the Castro government in the service of overthrowing it. Um, it looks like he was running an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba committee involving Lee Harvey Oswald. Was Lee Harvey Oswald being hung out there as a dangle for perhaps the Soviets to latch on to, maybe to turn him into a double agent? Or do you think he was being groomed for something to take place later on in Cuba? You know, if you look at the way, I mean, it's a very good question, first of all. Uh, and, and I'll have a frustrating answer for it. You know, when, when CIA officers run covert operations, you keep your options open and you can go many different directions. Um, Oswald had a very interesting biography, which was why he, which is why many, you know, a dozen top CIA officials paid attention to him. Mm. Uh, not many Americans had defected to the Soviet Union, married a Russian woman, and returned to the United States. In fact, he's pretty much unique, um, which is why these very high CIA officials paid close attention to him from 1959 to 1963. And so, you know, what were they planning for him? Well, it seems clear that uh, two things. One, his file was handled in unusual ways um, in terms of who had access to it. And that seems to be a reflection of perhaps, you know, if there was a Soviet spy within the CIA, which was a very big concern of the agency at the time, Oswald would be somebody who a spy would be interested in. So, uh, maybe the the you you talk about a dangle. I, I I think of it as Oswald was might have been bait, or you know uh, a marker to see was somebody within the CIA especially interested in him. That's one possible use that had. I also think that I think that this developing and publicizing his his relationship with the Fair Play for Cuba committee was a prelude to action against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, because the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was the target of the CIA and the FBI, which hoped to destroy it, um, and which they, in fact, did. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee went out of business in December 1963. So I think that the my best guess, and, I, and I, that's what I would call it, is a, is a, a guess, a, an informed guess, informed speculation is that Joannides was involved in running an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee that somehow exploited 
the person of Lee Oswald, probably unwittingly, um, for the purposes of advancing a, you know, a known, given, authorized CIA goal, the destruction of a pro-Castro group. Let's talk about the assassination on November 22nd, 1963, leading up to that. Yeah. Was Oswald being manipulated? Was he being routed, if you will, to work at the Texas School Book Depository to be a patsy? You know, that's an imponderable level, and we just don't have that much evidence. I mean, how did Oswald get that job through through a recommendation of a friend. Um, uh, you know, I, at that level, I prefer not to speculate. We just don't know. We just don't know. What is important to understand is a couple of days before Oswald took that job on October 15th, 1963, at the Texas School Book Depository, by that time, Oswald had a, a fat file at the CIA, probably 40 to 50 different reports on his life between 1959 and 1963. Uh, these reports were circulated, read by, absorbed by top officials in the clandestine service on October 10th, 1963. So by the time Oswald got to that job in Dealey Plaza, he had been watched by the CIA for four years. He'd been watched when he defected in Moscow. They had received information when he moved to Minsk. They were informed when he married Marina Prusakova, the Russian woman. They were informed when he sailed back to the United States. Uh, they were informed when the FBI interviewed him twice in the summer of 1962. They were informed in 1963 when he was arrested in New Orleans. Uh, in, a, in an altercation with members of the DRE, and they were informed, finally, when he went to Mexico City in October 1963. So top CIA officials watched Oswald for four years as he made his way towards Dealey Plaza. I say that without fear of contradiction. That is absolutely true, unimpeachably true. No one can dispute it. One thing I wanted to mention, too, folks, we've talked about New Orleans and the fair play for Cuba. Uh, committee and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald started up his own branch, and um, he started that up in 1963 as well when he was living in New Orleans. Now, guess how many people were involved with that particular branch? One, Lee Harvey Oswald. That was it. So obviously, right. when you zoom out, go ahead, Jeff. Please, I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah, no. So, so. That, no, and that's a very good point. And, and the other point to understand is at that same moment that he's the only member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, in New Orleans, the FPCC has been targeted for disruption and destruction by the FBI and the CIA. Mm -hmm. And Oswald is the character who eventually leads the organization to be destroyed. So uh, they were seeking to destroy the Fair Play for Cuba Committee by covert means, and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was destroyed. Now, was the CIA responsible? Well, the connection between Lee Oswald and the FPC was responsible for the end of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and it was the CIA front group run and funded, guided and monitored by CIA undercover, undercover officer George Joannides, which publicized 
the Oswald FPCC connection in August 1963, three months before the assassination, and on the night of November 22nd, several hours after the assassination. So the CIA's actions ensured the destruction of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And it stands to reason we don't have the the, we don't have the proof, we don't have a document that says it, but that's the chain of events that happened. So the CIA was responsible, and George Joannides was in the thick of it, and all of his records, most of his records, remain secret to this day, 50-plus years later. So it's an extremely sensitive story, buried very deeply in the national security state. Um, why do you say but that? Why do you say pregnant. national security state? I think it's important for the uh, the younger folk to understand why we say that. Yeah. So by the national security state, we mean, you know, the state is the the entities that run the government, the the law enforcement, the the Federal Aviation Administration, all the things that kind of govern our public lives and are useful. But the the state is also the secretive agencies and. So when I talk about you know, the national security state, I'm talking primarily about the CIA, but also the other agencies that are collect intelligence and are secretive, the DIA, the NSA, uh, and so on. And so collectively, when I talk about the national security state, people should understand these secret agencies, you know, they've been out there for 50 years. And, 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 and this, isn't, this isn't some conspiracy theory. Uh, you know, this is, the fact, this is the fact of the way the U.S. government works. And, and people should recognize it as such. So when I talk about the national security state hiding these secrets, you know, you have the CIA, which has the ability to keep information secret, not only about something as sensitive as, you know, the assassination of a president, but also something that's been investigated repeatedly by Congress, by different, uh, by different entities, um, been written about endlessly, uh, you know, literally thousands of books, and yet they, they still have the power to withhold information from public view. Even when we know from, you know, from, from other sources kind of what, what that information is about, and we know very specifically. I'm talking, I'm, this isn't a fishing expedition, I'm talking about what, what, what operations was the CIA running in New Orleans in the summer of 1963? That's a very specific question. We're talking about, you know, that wasn't a huge center of CIA operations, not compared to, say, Miami. So, you know, we're talking about a handful of officers. And when you zoom in on it, all of a sudden you discover, man, there's a lot of blank pages there, mm. you know. There's something about that story that is still so sensitive that the CIA can't bear to surrender. The book and is that's called very telling. You know, think about that after 50 years. The book is called, folks, yeah. The CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Files. Easy way to get it is always www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover, and it'll take you right to a place where you can order the book online from the comfort of your own home. The author of that book and our guest tonight is Jefferson Morley. He's got a, believe it or not, he's going after the big guys. He's got a, a lawsuit out trying to get files from the CIA, hidden secret files, concerning a fellow by the name of George Joannides, who was a liaison between the House Select Committee on Assassinations, late 70s, investigating the Kennedy assassination, and 
the CIA. So this fellow was, as Jeff mentioned before, the gatekeeper of everything. Let's go back to New Orleans because this is something I wanted to ask you before. I was waiting for the right time, and I think you just gave me a great segue into it. Right. Was Joe Anides working at all with Bannister and Ferry? Uh, you know, we we don't have any documentation of that, but um, uh, it's quite possible. Um, it might have worked in different ways. Um, uh, Joanides might have had a cutout between him and those other and those other guys. But the important thing is is that um, Guy Bannister was an asset when it came to waging war on the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And we do know that um, Tony Summers, uh, the British author, uh, did some of the best early investigative work of this. And, you know, Guy Bannister kept files on leftist groups, including the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And he had an office in the same building where Oswald set up his um, uh, Fair Play for Cuba, Cuba committee chapter, or at least took mail there. So, Doesn't that you know, seem odd? Uh, they're in close proximity. Doesn't that seem odd for the lay person to find out that here's this guy, uh, Bannister, ex-FBI guy, by the way, folks, and he's running guns off to Cuba with this fellow by the name of David Ferry. And I'm going to reference you to the JFK movie just to find out who David Ferry was and, and Bannister. Now, you've got these guys with an office downstairs dedicated to discrediting what Oswald has just set up in the same building. Doesn't doesn't that sound like they absolutely, should be an odd absolutely bizarre. and 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 that that's not just odd, Brent. I mean, that's a giveaway. That's a giveaway that there was a setup because um, New Orleans was a very conservative southern city, uh, very anti-Castro, and and there were a few people there who were pro-Castro. They didn't go around advertising it, and they and they because of the threat of violence from 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 the opponents of Castro, and they certainly didn't go set up an office in the office building that was the headquarters of the anti-Castro movement in New Orleans. That's a giveaway that Oswald was playing a double game. That would never happen if he was only a bona fide supporter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. So, so the, the fact that he was in the same building as Guy Bannister is very is very telling that 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 there's some kind of trickery or manipulation or or double dealing going on. Now we don't you know we don't know exactly what that was, but we can we can be fairly confident that it involved counter subversive psychological warfare. That was Guy Bannister's specialty. That was George Joannidi's specialty. Folks, we're speaking with uh, Jefferson yeah. Early tonight, and uh, he's a former writer for the Washington Post <laughs> online, and now national editor-director for the Center for Independent Media. He is the editor of JFKFacts.org, and I would encourage you to go there because he's just started a brand new podcast. Yes, he has, Alan Dale, hasn't he? And uh, it's a little joke between Alan and yeah. before the show. And I'll, we'll talk more <laughs> about that as we go, but I don't want to lose momentum. Um, so anyways, all those inf all the information I just gave you folks, www.nightfrightshow, and all the links will be there, withoutquestion.com. Let's stay in New Orleans. Everybody thinks that uh, um, George de Morenschild was probably Oswald's handler. I'm wondering now if it was Joe Needy's. 
especially given the fact you just told us that he had a residence there. Yeah, I'm skeptical about the idea of George okay. DeMorenschild as a handler. Yeah. Um, he, I, I think that he did favors for the CIA, and <laughs> he probably did a favor when it came to Oswald in terms of keeping track of him. But handling him, directing him in a covert operation, that was not what George DeMorenschild did. He was not an operations officer. He was a kind of asset. He was kind of asset to the agency. Um, uh, and, and clearly uh, latched onto Oswald, probably passed information about Oswald's state of mind, his, his intentions to the agency in early 1963. But in terms of directing him towards an action that the C CIA wanted, I don't, that's not what George Morinshield did. That is what George Joannides would have done as an operations officer. And that is why I think you're right. He, Joannides, is a more likely handler of Oswald. Now, given the way covert operations work, Joannides might have in turn worked through another person, in intelligence terminology, a cutout, so that Oswald would never have met with him personally. That's another way of maintaining plausible deniability so the CIA can say they were not involved. So, but yes, Joannides is a much more likely as a handler uh, directly or indirectly of Oswald than George Morinshaw. Now, that's why I'm wondering why he would cover up so many papers and why the CIA would drag their lower proximity, if you will, folks, in getting you these... Uh, these papers that should be free for everybody by this time, so many years after the assassination, there's value to these documents. And we can only speculate, I suppose, yes. at this point, what's in those documents. But, you know, a lot of people might be jumping to the conclusion that, oh, Joannides organized the assassination, got Oswald involved with the assassination, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's the case. But perhaps they knew about no. the plot beforehand. No, no. no. Yeah, I mean... Let me say quite clearly, George Joannides was not the intellectual author of the Kennedy assassination. He was a reliable, highly thought of CIA operation officer who carried out the wishes of his superiors. Right. He did not act on his own. He was not a rogue officer. He was nothing, a there's, there is nothing in his record that suggests that. Um, so he, he was... Uh, in, in what I think was an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, he was re responding to the wishes of his superiors, people higher up in the CIA chain of command, people at CIA headquarters. So um, that's the, I think that's the big picture. And I think, you know, the only conclusion that I can draw from the CIA's amazing and extreme secrecy measures around this so is, that there's material in, in these documents that would embarrass them, uh, you know, in some way or another. And, and you know, I don't want to prejudice it. And, you know, I'll go so far as to say, you know, maybe Joannides was asleep at the wheel and this guy Oswald up and shot the president for no reason. I mean, I don't think that's the case. There's a lot of reason to think that that's not the case. But given the amount of secrecy about what's going on, I, I can't really rule it out, you know, I mean, it may not be likely, but it's possible. 
that's why we need to see the records. And yes. this, that's why this, this, this position of extreme secrecy is so frustrating for anybody, regardless of what you think about the assassination. If you just want to know, you know, th these things should be made public. And that brings us to the last argument that, oh, there's some information in, this, in these documents that is relevant to U.S. national security today. Really? A 53-year-old document about a covert war on a country, Cuba, which we are no longer at war with. We have normal diplomatic relations with the, with Good. Raul Castro's government. Good point. And this is somehow going to be a threat to the United States in the era of Al-Qaeda and ISIS? That, that's preposterous. I mean, let's just be honest. That is preposterous. And it's we, we, we wind up with only two choices. Either the CIA's rationale is absurd, I mean, crazy, or it's sinister. They're hiding something, you know, damaging and, and, and incriminating about the assassination of, of a U.S. president 50 years later. That's our choice. And so, you know, people are cynical about the government. Well, you know, when you're given that choice about the assassination of a president after a half century, the CIA's explanation is preposterous Agreed. or it's sinister. You make the choice. Yeah. You know, that, that's bad. And, and, and I, I'm hoping that the CIA will come to its senses. It's not likely. But, you know, a lot of people are interest, still interested in the Kennedy assassination. And there's no reason not to make this things public. You know, Brent, if it turned out that we learned tomorrow that, you know, there was a plot to kill the president, that wouldn't bring our government down. Not at all. That, you know, that wouldn't surprise a lot of people. Other people would be very disturbing. We'd have to, you know, have accountability. Who let this happen? How did it happen? But it wouldn't be the end of the world. This is ancient history. And this is no danger to the American people. You know, we can handle the truth, even if it's, you know, even if it's pleasant, even if there were dirty deeds involved. With this distance of history, we should know. So my book is really an effort to say, let's cut the crap. Let's, you know... Let's let's look at this in a kind of dispassionate way. What are the facts, and what you know? What, what do they tell us? Uh, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is let's just describe the evidence, you know, and then I think we'll come to a closer approximation of the truth. Jeff, 13 years is a long time to be at battle with one of the biggest institutions in this in the states, in the United States. Who's handling the case for you? Yeah. So I have a great attorney. Jim Lassar, a uh, veteran JFK investigator and campaigner, has been involved in this thing, you know, since I was, you know, in elementary school. Jim was already using the Freedom of Information Act, a uh, tireless lawyer. So he has handled this case and handled it brilliantly. You know, he's going up against a highly paid cadre of Justice Department lawyers. Mm. And we have won three times in federal appellate court. So you're talking to, you know, the, the highest judges in the country, right? These are not just a federal judge, but the appellate court judges. These are the guys who become Supreme Court justices. Three times we've gone before appellate court judges. Three times we've prevailed over the CIA, thanks to Jim's arguments. So Jim Lassar has just been, you know, invaluable for me in taking on this case and never giving up. In fact, a couple of years ago, I'll tell you, Brent, I was like, Jim, you know, I was, I was, frankly, I was, I was, you know, I was discouraged. And I said, Jim, you know, let, let, let's just, let's throw it in. You know, 
I, I've done what I can. You've done what you can. And Jim was like, no, you know, we got one more shot at him. We'll take, you know, I'll write another brief, you know? It's and it's like, man, it. that guy is ready to go to war against the CIA. That's very brave. If he's willing to do it, damn it, I'm in with you, Jim. I'll, I'll do it too, you know? And we should all so be in he's with a, you. He's an inspiration. What can people do to help out? Uh, well, you know, I think buy the book and uh, CIA and JFK on Amazon and educate yourself and learn about it. And what I'm trying to get people to do is pay attention to what's coming, because this isn't all history. The next president, whoever it is, is going to face a big decision in about mm, 15 months. October 2017, the last of the CIA's JFK records are supposed to become public by law. Uh, and knowing the CIA, uh, we think that it's likely that they will try and keep some of those records public. On the other hand, with public exposure and attention, uh, I think that the CIA could be forced against its will to do the right thing in the sense that they would sense that there was bad publicity if they continue to withhold this material and that they will suffer in public opinion, in the press, and in Congress if they continue to hide JFK records. So what I'm telling people is educate yourself about this coming release and let people know that we need full, dis full JFK disclosure in October 2017. I talk about this on my website at JFK Facts. I, I do tweets about this. Um, you know, there's a group of websites that are all on the same wavelength on this issue, and I urge people to go there. MaryFarrell.org is kind of like the library yeah, of the JFK resource. assassination. Mm -hmm. All the documents, all the books, all the arguments, you can, you know, you can get your bearings there. Um, JFK Lancer is kind of like the retail store. Uh, that's where you can buy tapes. Uh, uh, you can uh, uh, learn about uh, the assassination that way. So, um, Quick question then, about uh, Joannides. You know, was he covering sure. his, his own butt, or was he covering up for the CIA, or perhaps both, during the House Select uh, Committee by controlling that information? Uh, both. I mean, he had to protect himself, because if he had been forced to testify honestly, the information that he would have given up would have damaged not only him, but it would have damaged his superiors. So who he was protected by protecting himself. In 63, who, uh, was superior, so, who was he reporting to? Dick Helms? So if you look at the chain of, of command, yeah, uh, he was reporting to David Phillips, chief of Cuba operations, oh, yeah. who, was, uh, who, was, who was working out of Mexico City. And then um, Joannides was put into that job by Dick Helms, the, who was then the deputy director of the CIA and later became director. So uh, his reporting authority went straight to the top. Phillips was the top guy in Cuba operations. Helms was the top guy in the clandestine service. So that is who Joannides was reporting to. And that's who he was protecting when he obstructed uh, the HSCA's investigation. The top echelon of the dirty tricks people. You've got a new book coming out, and I'd just like yeah. to touch on that and leave the people with a bit of a dangle on that one. There's that word again. Um, James Jesus Angleton. Now, apparently you traveled all yes. the way to Israel for, to do research on this book. Folks, this is going to be groundbreaking, this book. 
Is there anything you can give us that won't give anything away? Does that make sense? Is that even English? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I have I have finished a biography, the, really the first biography of James Angleton, who was chief of the counterintelligence staff of the CIA for 25 years. Um, and it is a revelatory book um, about uh, Angleton and the JFK, and Angleton and Oswald, about the JFK investigation, um, about uh, Angleton and Israel, about Angleton and uh, programs of mass surveillance. Um, I'm not going to give away, uh, you know, uh, some of the details, but on all of these subjects, <clears throat> uh, the story of James Angleton has only begun to be told. And the book is going to be very surprising mm. to a lot of people who think that they know something about Angleton. Uh, in fact, I mean, I felt like I made a lot of progress, uh, but there's a lot more to be known about Angleton and Oswald, Angleton and Israel, Angleton and mass surveillance. So it's a very rich look at this, uh, you know, secret, secretive government agencies that exercised incredible power and really no one outside the government had any idea of what was going on. Really? Nobody outside the government knew what was going on? Holy cow. So, <laughs> well, what else is new? Yeah. I sound surprised, but in this day and age, I, I guess I'm still so naive. Well, I'm Canadian. What can I tell you? <laughs> this stuff still surprises me. <laughs> Israel yeah. so, so admired. The Angleton book will be published. I just want to say the Angleton book will be published in early 2017 by St. Martin's Press. So it's coming. Great. That's good news. And I just want to tell folks, Israel so admired James Jesus Angleton that they erected a small statue in his memory. That's a fact. So I'm anxious. Hopefully you'll agree to come back on the show when that book is released and we can discuss that at greater length. I will definitely do that. Be thank, glad to. Thank you so much for that. JFKFacts.org, your friend and mine, Alan Dale, and your podcast. Now, this is a weekly thing that you've both set up. And fans of this show will know Alan. He's yeah. been on the show a million times. Alan, if you're listening, you want to call in, you're more than welcome to. Um, can you give us a little bit about what led you to do a podcast? Well, you know, Alan came to me with this idea of like, you know, let, let's talk about this stuff. And I realized, you know, I hear from a lot of people. People email me out of the blue. Some with, you know, incredibly complex questions. Somebody emailed me the other day and said, what about Michael Payne's used car? I said, I don't know anything about Michael Payne's used car. So sometimes they get incredibly detailed questions. Other times people call up and say, you know, did Oswald fire the fatal shots? What do you think? Mm -hmm. You know, so all manner of in between. But it made me realize that, you know, there would be some value in just having a normal conversation. And we try to have a conversation about, you know, the JFK stuff that's in the news, like, you know, Donald Trump has a, crazies, unfounded JFK theory. But, you know, there was a lot of coverage of that. So what's going on with that? So we try and cover stuff like that. And then we also try and delve back into what are the good books? What are the new books about the assassination? There's this huge body of work. And, you know, a lot of it's crap. Some of it's very good. Some of it's in between. So the, Alan said that there'd be some value in kind of talking these things through. And, you know, once we did it, we have no problem, you know, it's amazing how much JFK 
you know, doesn't go away. There's always something in the news cycle. The, the Trump thing is just the latest. You might say, well, that's crazy, but can you it's tell JFK. The folks what the it's, Trump you know, thing it's is? like so they know it's the Ted Cruz thing, by the way. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so early on in the primary season, um, Trump said, based on a, a, a blogger, as it turns out, that there's a picture of Lee Oswald and a man in the picture with Lee Oswald in the summer of 1963 was Rafael Cruz, Ted, Ted Cruz's father. Now, JFK researchers have studied that photograph of Oswald and uh, various investigators have made a lot of effort to identify all the people who appeared in it because anybody who was associated with Oswald was, of course, of interest. So, um, uh, now, there's no reason to think that the man in the picture is Ted Cruz's father. And even if it was, which I'm not saying it was, so what? I mean, this was three months before the assassination. It was, it was a kind of classic innuendo or smear of a political rival. It was not a serious assessment of the facts around who was Oswald and who were his associates. So, um, so as a substantive contribution to the JFK assassination story, Trump's theory was nonsense and of no use whatsoever. But it's, it shows how the uh, JFK assassination remains, lives on in memory, even to be misused by a demagogue, which was the case in, in, in this example. Um, uh, so it still has some power. It still has some emotional resonance that, that yeah. people bring it up. And so that's, you're, you're you know, that's well the kind connected. of thing that, that, that we talk about. You're very well connected. Yeah. Um, where do you think that story originated from? I, it was obviously part of a smear campaign. Where do you think it may have originated from? If you look at it in terms of when it appeared on the Internet, it originated with a blogger named Wayne Madsen. Uh, has something called the Wayne Madsen Report. And, you know, Wayne Madsen... I mean, I don't think it's unfair to describe him as a conspiracy theorist. That sometimes that's an unfair label to apply to people. And he's not. He he worked in government. He's a knowledgeable guy about the workings of government in some way. But he had very little evidence to support mm. this. And um, he seems to have been encouraged uh, in this by Roger Stone, uh, a uh, a right wing political operative who was close to Trump at one point. And so, uh, uh, and Stone specializes in these kinds of stories that impugn a rival, make, you know, make a rival look really bad, make it hard for somebody to respond, because even to respond to this charge was, you know, I mean, Ted Cruz didn't want to respond to this charge. It was so ridiculous. Um, uh, so there's a kind of hardball politics at work here, I think. So. Between Wayne Madsen and Roger Stone, I think that's how the story got going. Now, what yeah. I'm curious is, how does the community come together to combat stuff like this? Well, uh, you know, what I there. try and do on JFK Facts, what I try and do on JFK Facts is, you know, stick to the facts. So, Ted, Trump says this guy in the photo with Oswald is Rafael Cruz. What's the evidence? Well, the FBI spent a lot of time identifying people in that picture. People who knew Oswald and were familiar with that incident gave testimony. So if you review all of that, 
basically, there's no reason to think that that person is Ted Cruz, but that person cannot be identified, was never conclusively identified. So we don't quite know. And that sort of helps Trump because then he can say, oh, well, you know, you didn't disprove it. Okay, that's fine. Uh, what we need to do as fact finders is lay out the facts as they are known hmm. and let reasonable people make their conclusions. And so all the people I've talked to of many different views about the causes of the assassination itself, and they all agree there's no reason to think that that person in the picture is Ted Cruz. So I think that's what we as a community have to do is just say, look, we're not going to put up with any crap. We are going to establish the best information as best we can and let people decide. Mainstream media, they stay away yeah. from anything pertaining to the JFK assassination unless they get some kooks on. And there's never a shortage of kooks to come yeah. forward. Yeah. Has this hurt your own career as a legitimate investigator, legitimate journalist? I think it probably has, you know, I mean, there's just a, there's a shadow, there's a, there's a, there's a residue that attaches itself. And no matter how reasonable you are, and no matter what your track record, I mean, I've broken a lot of stories on JFK facts that were picked up by Detroit Free Press, by CNN, by Associated Press. Um, uh, my takedown of Bill O'Reilly was tell us you know, about that. On I was CNN. just going to mention that. Please tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, this this is the fact-based approach. Um, so uh, Bill O'Reilly in his book said that um, he was investigating. This is in his book. Yeah, about about killing Kennedy. He said he was at the he was present and he heard the gunshot when George DeMorenshield killed himself. In fact, um, he had called a uh, Gaten Fonzi, an investigator for the HSCA, that night and said, I'm in Dallas. I, want, I heard DeMorenshield committed suicide. I'm going to come there. So we had and Fonzi had kept a tape of the conversation. And his widow gave me a copy of the tape. And so I reproduced it on the site and then gave it to CNN. And it proved that O'Reilly, in his book, told a lie. He said he was present and when, in fact, his own voice disclosed that he was a thousand miles away in Dallas. So that's the kind of story that we broke. You know, that's a good story. Everybody could recognize it. O'Reilly couldn't say anything because it was indistinct disputably true. He could hear his own voice uh, debunking his own story. So, you know, but uh, does it, has it hurt my career? Maybe, you know, but you know what? When you take on tough stories, you know, you, you find opposition. So, you know, I try not to worry about it. And there's the music. Thank you so much for coming on tonight, Jeff. www.nightfrightshow.com. The book is called CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Files, Order from the Comfort of Your Own Home. We'll see you next time. Holland for Thank Night you, See you next time.
JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.